Good morning, Redeemer. It's good to see you. If you would, open with me to Isaiah chapter 49. Isaiah chapter 49. If you'd keep it open, we'll be going right through it verse by verse. The last time I was with you, we started in on considering the servant songs, which are a collection of beautiful messianic prophecies at the end of Isaiah, written about 700 years before the birth of Christ. And so last time in October, we saw in Isaiah 42, the first song spoke to the Messiah's character. If you remember, we said that he is both gentle and just. He's both gentle and just. Today, the second song speaks to his calling, his destiny from his mother's womb. You remember Israel had turned away from God, and that sin brought them to rock bottom as captives in Babylon. Cyrus would send them home about 200 years from the writing of Isaiah, but there's a question. It's a very difficult question. Would Israel be any different just because Cyrus had set them free and sent them home? Sure, their circumstances would change, but would their character change? Would it simply be a change in location, moving from Babylon back to the promised land? The answer, yeah, is ultimately yes, but only through one means, one man. This servant that we read about in these passages, the ideal of Israel, he would be for and in Israel what Israel could never be in itself. Their only hope would be to have their character and calling completely wrapped up in the character and calling of this suffering servant. So let's pray, and then we're going to read Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 13. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we echo what your followers told the disciples in John 12 when they said, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. That's what we want today. And we know that you responded by telling them that if anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there you will be my servant also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And so, Father, today we are asking for the privilege to serve you. We wish to see your Son and servant in his glory. So be with these dear folks who have gathered, illuminate their hearts as they consider Scripture today, and be with me. By your Spirit, Father, I am a man of unclean lips, but in you my sins are atoned for and I rejoice. And I pray the same for those who are gathered here today. We love you. It's in the matchless name of Jesus that we can even approach your throne. And so thank you so much for your word, and may it do its work today. It's in your precious name that I pray. Amen. Isaiah 49, starting in verse 1, we'll go through 13. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, and from the body of my mother he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me, he made me like a polished arrow. In his quiver he hid me away. He said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity, yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back, and that Israel might be gathered to him, 
for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my strength has be- and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor, I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, to say to the prisoners, come out, and to those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways, and on all bare heights shall bear their pasture, shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west and from the land of Syene. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. This is the word of the Lord. You'll notice the first half of the text, verses 1 through 7, focus on the servant's role or his calling. And the second half, verses 8 through 13, focuses on his work or his way. And so my simple hope for us today is that we would leave here rooted in his true role and comforted in his relentless way. Rooted in this servant's true role and comforted in his relentless way. Y'all, his truth dispels what is false in us, doesn't it? A light shines there, and falsity and darkness cannot stay. His ways give us an urgency where we might be tempted to be apathetic and gives us patience where we might be restless. That's my hope for us today as we consider this text. So first, look with me at verse 1. We want to be rooted in his true role. Listen to me, O coastlands. Give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. First, notice that it's the servant speaking here, this messianic figure of the servant. Uh, Yahweh, God the Father, is typically who speaks in the first person in Isaiah, but there are some rare um, instances, the servant songs being one of them. So what would motivate this shift to first person for the servant? What would be so important that he would want to speak for himself and let us know something, let Israel know something? It's this. The servant asks us to pay attention to his predestination, his foreordained calling. His name from his mother's womb is simply a way of describing his purpose, his destiny, his role in the universe. Friends, think of the angel's words to Joseph in Matthew 1. What does he say? 
She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Before he was born, he had a name, and that name had everything to do with his calling in life and his role in our lives. His name, his role would be that of Joshua, Yahweh saves. He is the Savior before he's even born. This is what the servant wants us to know. I was called from my mother's womb. It's his grounding. It's his roots. And he's not alone in this. Listen to how Paul speaks to the Ephesians, to those who claim the name given by the servant. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. So he predestined us and sent Jesus, later verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. What are we saying here? What do we see in both Paul and Isaiah? Jesus' name and his role moves heaven and earth towards the unity that it was created for. Do you see that? All things together. The name and the role of the servant. The name and the role of Jesus. What went wrong? What went wrong? Shakespeare said, all the world's a stage... And all the men and women are merely players. They have their exits and their entrances, and one man in his time plays many parts. He goes on to say that one man will be, at different points in his life, an infant, a schoolboy, a lover, a soldier, and then enter into the second childishness of old age. French theologian Henry Blocker, actually writing on Isaiah 49, reminds us that this reality, that all of us have multiple roles in our lives, is not insincerity, nor is it hypocrisy. I was once in a production called The Complete Works of William Shakespeare Bridge, and three or four characters played all the characters across all of his plays, and it was wild. All the costume changes. I put on many different faces for the sake of the goal. But what we're talking about here, that each of us play roles in our life, that's not insincerity, that's not hypocrisy, it's simply a reality of life. When a child speaks with a parent, they play the role of a child, not the role of a spouse, not the role of a friend. That's not how they would talk with their parent. But this reality, this common sense reality, sparks a deeper question in our souls, and Blocker puts it beautifully. So listen as he explains this. All these faces, all these roles, among them all, who am I? Among all these names I bear, which is mine? Pause for a second. I could get up here in front of you and say all kinds of things. I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a son. I'm a pastor. I'm an ENFP. I'm a number three. I'm a Libra. I don't know if I am or not. Most of these things, I don't even know if they're right. Uh, Honey badger is my spirit animal. 
right? Or at least I want it to be. I don't know if I actually am. I could say anything about myself. Some of which are true, some may be made up. Among all these names I bear, which is mine, but here lies the difficulty. If I say that my being is identical with them, my being is exploded. And I love that word. If I wrap myself up in all these different things that I say that I am, my being is exploded. There is no longer any unity. Am I just an abstract point of convergence? If so, I'm nothing. There is only one way out of this dilemma. If I have a name, a role, which unites all the other roles, then I am safe. If my innermost being is that role and name which God has given me from my mother's womb, then there can be unity. The role, the name which God predestines is the foundation and justification of whatever partial names and roles we may have. It's the grounding. It's how we are rooted. What is he saying? If we spend our time and energy defining ourselves, naming ourselves according to what we think we are in all these various spheres, we're lost. In his word, we're exploded. The good news for us here is that we don't have to hop on the hamster wheel of naming ourselves because we already have a name. You have a name. And we have a name because our servant Savior gives us one because His Father gave Him one. Are you following? This is how it's working in the family of God. Friends, your being, your identity, if that's even a good word to use for it, is well-founded and unified in the role that God has given you. And this role has a context in the whole plan of God. So just ask yourself, am I struggling in any one of my roles? Think about any one of the roles you play in life. Am I struggling in any of those? You might feel like a, fail, like a failure, or that failure reigns over something relational or vocational in your life. Maybe you've lost the loved one who made you a spouse, a parent, a friend. You might be asking, who am I without them here? Maybe your sin feels so big as to have started defining you. Elbert spoke to this well last week. You are not defined by your sin. You are not named by your sin. In Christ, your name is no longer sinner. Your name is saint if you are hidden in Christ. Amen? Hear me. You may have fallen... Your relationships may be falling apart, but you have not exploded. Isn't that good news? Hey, everything might be going kind of rough right now, but at least I haven't blown up. <laughs> what I mean is your person, your being has not exploded. I know it might feel like you have, but you can be rooted, grounded, and established in Jesus. The servant we hear from in Isaiah is sustained through suffering by the name and calling given to him by God, and the same is true of me and you. As Peter reminds us, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. 
If you're a note taker, just write down those four words and meditate on them. Let me read them one more time. Restore, confirm, strengthen, establish. If God has called you and rescued you by His grace, those are the works that He is doing in your heart and in your life right now. He is about the work of restoring, confirming, strengthening, and establishing you. You have a name. You have a role. Paul prays that the Father, who names every family in heaven and earth, would strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Named by God, rooted in His calling, rooted in your calling. Look with me at verse 2. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. The passage quickly zooms in on the specifics of the role of the servant. What are the specific things he's going to do? He is to be God's instrument. We can even call him God's weapon. The imagery here is that of a sword and an arrow. And I want you to immediately jump to Hebrews 4. What do we hear in Hebrews 4 about the Word of God? He's made my mouth like a sharp sword. Listen to this from Hebrews 4.12. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And again, Revelation 1.16. In His right hand He held seven stars, and from His mouth came a sharp two-edged sword sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Who is this servant? What is he here for? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And this Word, this servant, is able to reach the deepest recesses of our being, able to discern truth from falsehood, able like a surgeon's scalpel, to give us that blessed wound, that cut that removes the things that would bring us death if allowed to remain. That's the role of this servant. Verse 3, and he said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. Over and over again, we hear the servant Um, compared to Israel or personified with Israel. He's so associated with Israel that it uh, can be one of his names. This one is the Israel in whom God will be glorified, or another way to translate that would be display my beauty. But this one, this servant would pass through the waters like Israel did in the Red Sea. This one would go into the wilderness and wander, but this one passed through the waters of baptism passed through the wilderness of temptation with Satan, and he came through unscathed, unlike the former Israel. Do you see that he's the true Israel? The nation had been a failure as a servant, as we saw in chapter 42, but the one in whom the Lord will be glorified is the one who deserves the name Israel. 
When God says to the servant, you are Israel, he is indirectly rebuking the nation. God is both disciplining and comforting Israel at the same time, leading them back home and shepherding their hearts. Jump down with me to verse 7. We'll come back to 4 and 6 um, in a minute, but, but read verse 7 with me. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Here we begin to see a recurring theme in all the servant songs. Part of his calling and role would be mistreatment and contempt. It's not all victory. It's also mistreatment and contempt. He will be despised and abhorred deeply. Thomas Kelly expresses it beautifully in his hymn, Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted. Tell me as you hear him groaning, was there ever grief like his? Friends through fear his cause disowning, foes insulting his distress. Many hands were raised to wound him. None would intervene to save but the deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave. The justice of a righteous God pouring out his wrath against sin and raising us to new life united to this servant. Friends, it wasn't grandeur or success by which this chosen one would win the allegiance. You see these kings bowing before him, kings and princes coming before him. It wasn't his grandeur, it wasn't his success. One day kings would see him and stand in his presence. One day princes will see him and fall flat on their faces. But how will he present himself in that glory? How will this king present himself in that glory? Revelation 5, 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb. I didn't help pick the songs this week. Multiple songs today spoke about the lamb. It was beautiful. I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. The lamb is somehow still standing even though it should be dead. That's the picture of our suffering servant. That's the kind of king whom all kings will fall on their faces for one day. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I'm inviting you right now to cry out to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. We want to see Jesus. In the face of so many false saviors, this servant rings true and reigns true. May his role as a servant, king, and savior root you in the love of God. Root you in the love of God. Next, I hope we leave here today comforted by his relentless way. Comforted by his relentless, relentless way. Look with me at verse 8. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor, I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion desolate heritages. Every role includes responsibilities, and we see in this second half of the text that the way that the servant will fulfill his role, right? This is how he's going to carry it out. And the first thing we notice is that he is on time. He is right on time time. In a time of favor, I have answered you. In the day of salvation, I have helped you. We read earlier in the service from 2 Corinthians 6. 
Paul cites this part of Isaiah 49 to urge the Corinthians on in their faith. So Paul actually uses this text to urge them on. I'm, going to lead, I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to read portions. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If you could memorize one verse to summarize the beauty of our justification, that's it right there. He became sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. But Paul goes on, working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you, and in a day of salvation, I have helped you. That's Isaiah 49. Behold, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry, but as servants, there's that word again, of God, we commend ourselves in every way. So what's going on here? Paul hearkens back to a passage about their suffering servant, bringing us back to God, to persuade the Corinthians to endure suffering and be reconciled to God. The prophecy is fulfilled. Gentiles are receiving the grace of God. He says not to receive the grace of God in vain, right? Instead, receive it with the full weight of gratitude and wonder that extravagant grace deserves. We don't receive this grace in vain. Now look back for a moment at what the servant himself wondered in verse 4. Flip back over for me. Verse 4, he said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity, yet surely my right is with God and my recompense with God. Even as a suffering servant, he wondered, is all this for naught? Is this suffering for nothing? No, it wasn't in vain. It just wasn't the right time. But God was doing something, and He would accomplish something. When Jesus cried out, Why have you forsaken me? For a moment, the hope and joy of what was set before Him may have been darkened like the sky all around them in the middle of the day. But it was not in vain, because the right time was coming. The day of vindication was three days later, and then again a few weeks later, when God vindicated the pain vindicated the loneliness, vindicated the suffering through resurrection and ascension. And Jesus is now at the right hand of God the Father, fully vindicated. It was not in vain, was it? Never in doubt, never in vain. Friends, the servant so associated himself with us that our heritage of sin and death is transformed into a family tree of life. And what we're about to see is that prisoners will walk free. Those in darkness fumble forward in their grave clothes like Lazarus. Look with me at verses 9 through 10. Saying to the prisoners, come out. And to those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways, and all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst. Neither scorching, sun, scorching wind nor sun shall strike them, for he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. Are you hearing how these prophecies have been fulfilled over the course of Scripture? Again, we'll jump straight to Revelation. Revelation 7, Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. 
For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. It's fulfilled. This is the way of the servant king. The way he goes about his life and work. It was the way Jesus interacted with the weak and wounded, sick and sore sinners who came to him. He feeds the hungry. He shelters the exposed. He sets prisoners free. The way he fulfills his calling reflects his gentle and just character. Look with me at verse 11. And I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. This theme of mountains being laid low and roads being raised up is common, um, especially from Isaiah 40. That's where we see it first. And it shows up in every single gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This idea of mountains being laid low, roads being raised up. It doesn't just make it into the servant songs or the gospels, though. It even made it into Marvin Gaye's song, Ain't No Mountain High Enough, Ain't No Valley Low Enough, Ain't No River Wide Enough. What? To keep me from you. What's the road for? It's to get his people back to himself. It's to make a way for his children to be close to him. Through the darkness of the valley, the servant is leading the way to light. Through the darkness of the deepest mountain, the servant is blasting a way out, paving a road that leads us back into the warmth of the sun. One commentator uh, speaks to the context of what this verse would mean for people who lived in that time. The roads of the ancient Near East were for the most part unpaved. Although unpaved, those intended for wheeled transport, called wagon roads, had to be staked out, leveled, and consistently maintained. Assyrian kings rarely boasted of their road constructions, as it appeared to be the duty of the local populations. In one ancient text, a king commands that when his son succeeds him, the vassal must submit to him and smooth his way in every respect. Did y'all catch that? To smooth the road would be to roll out the red carpet for the king. Most kings demanded it be done for them. But what does our king say here? This king came not to be served, but to serve. The servant king not only smooths the road himself, he does it for his people. He's the one paving the road. He's the one smoothing the way. If you've spent any time driving in like I did growing up in West Feliciana Parish in Louisiana, and now I've spent a little bit more time here in Claiborne County, Mississippi. You find those old roads that are sunken down. You can tell long before they were paved, they were dirt tracks that just got worn down and down and down. And you see the high embankments on either side, and you all see the trees reaching over, creating kind of a tunnel. You can tell that's an old road, right? That one's been there for a while. So what, is it, what does he mean here when he says the highways will be raised up? It means that this is a new road. This is not an old road. Remember in Isaiah 42, he's, God said, I am doing a new thing. Well, this is one of the specific ways he's doing a new thing. He's making a new way. He's making a new way. John Oswalt says this, It's easy to talk about restoration, but how do we get from where we are to where we need to be? The servant's ministry is not merely to set them free from bondage of sin, but also lead them the full way home to God's presence. 
Could they have gotten from Babylon to Jerusalem without roads? Can we make our way back to God if He does not make a way? We can't do it. The servant will not just set you free, he'll lead you all the way home. All the way home. And he'll make a way where there is no way. My prayer is that you would be comforted by how relentless your Savior is in making a way for you to come to him. I think of the ancient Irish prayer, may the road rise up to meet you. That road ain't rising itself, okay? It's being brought up to your feet by the one who loves you and wants you back in his kingdom, wants you back in his family. Look with me at verse 12. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west and from the land of Syene. You know, you've heard it said all roads lead to Rome, but here we see that all roads lead the nations to salvation. We see the north, we see the south. Syene is likely southern Egypt. When he says afar, he means the east. When he says west, he means the sea. It's their world. People are coming from as far as I know there is. People are coming. And God is making a road for them to get there. I want you to imagine redemption being shaped like an hourglass. So it starts pretty broad at the beginning. Fill the earth and subdue it with Adam and Eve. But then it's just the seed of the woman. And then after that, it's just Noah's family. And then after that, it's just Abraham's family. And then it's Isaac, not Ishmael. It's Jacob, not Esau. It's like redemption narrows and narrows and narrows until it comes to its apex at one point in one person. Only one person fits in the kingdom, and that's Jesus Christ, great David's greater son, the son of Abraham, the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. But then what happens after that? After Jesus, we have go to Jerusalem, then to Judea, then to Samaria, and to all the ends of the earth. You see it? That's what God is doing. It narrows down to this focal point of Jesus and says, here is true Israel. He is going to do it. Verse 6 reminds us that it's not enough for the servant to bring only ethnic Israel back. He must bring the nations. Yahweh says to him, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. It's too light a thing. That's, no, that's, that's not enough. You're going to do so much more than that. You're not just bringing Israel back to the promised land. You're bringing my, all of my children home. The question is, are we compelled by that same urgency? Are we compelled by that same urgency that our suffering servant had to bring those who do not know him into this kingdom? I got to confess, I'm often impatient over what impacts myself and strangely patient over those things that my Savior presents as urgent. <laughs> the good of my neighbor, namely their salvation. It's interesting how in my mind I'll just flip that upside down. Urgent about what affects me, not so urgent about what affects those who need to hear the love of Jesus. I imagine many of you here are with me in that and can confess that. What are we urgent about? What are we patient about? 
God will not rest until He brings all of His children home, friends. He is relentless. Where there is no way, He will make a way, and He is always paving. He is always paving. Like Highway 49 for like 20 years. (laughs) Verse 13. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted His people and will have compassion on His afflicted. What's our only response to this? That God is bringing us home. Singing for joy. And if we won't do it, the mountains are going to do it, the rocks are going to cry out. Singing for joy is the only response. And so this Advent season, we are comforted not only by Emmanuel, God with us, that a little child will lead us, but by the coming reign of a relentless king with a sword coming out of his mouth. Do you see both pictures? We need both ends of Advent. The first coming, the second coming. That's comforting. As we're about to sing, the only thing we can pray is, Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. This road can't get paved soon enough. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set your people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, that means comfort. Israel's strength and comfort, hope of all the earth, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Friends, I want to invite you to bring that longing heart to this servant king. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you make a way where there is no way. Thank you for calling us to yourself. Quicken our hearts. Give us strength in our hands and our feet. May our roles in this life be shaped by your role that you've given us. May our names be wrapped up in the name that you have from all time. Thank you, Lord. There's so much grace, we can't, we can't plumb the depths of it. As we sing this last song, be glorified. Encourage your saints as they've gathered to worship you, Lord. And it's in your precious name I pray. Amen.